We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week as I introduce you to a hero, a freedom fighter, a veteran, a warrior, an immigrant, and other inspiring Americans living their American dreams with one common thread. They love America. In this podcast, we talk about the hard things, emotional and physical scars, PTSD, real challenges, and how they not only weathered the storms, but rose above the clouds to become stronger and better. Be assured, we laugh too. What is life without a bit of humor? These stories confirm what our founding fathers believed. America is truly a special place for a special people, and you are part of this great story. We the people, our American story is your podcast. Find yourself in this space every week, a place where American values are cherished and treasured, a place where we celebrate each other, a place you belong. This is part one of Nick's story, including having a challenging childhood with a drug-addicted father who cooked drugs under the family's trailer, dropping out of high school to work extra hours at Domino's Pizza, a move to Alaska where he spent long days at a fish plant, and finally the event that propelled Nick into joining the U.S. Army. This is Nick's American story. Welcome to this episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Nicholas Clark. Welcome, Nick. Hi, Tina. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on with you. Well, you are certainly welcome. As I was talking to you a little bit earlier, I met you online through Frank Fields, who was a guest a few weeks ago. Love Frank. And he told me that you have quite a story to share. So let's get started at the beginning. Can you share with us a little bit about growing up and what persuaded you to join the military? What was your journey to that point? Yeah, of course. Um, First of all, big shout out to Frank for uh, thinking that I have a good enough story to share with (laughs) you. I'll definitely have to own one for that. I grew up I was born in a town called Yakima, Washington. I've been there. About, oh, you've been there? I have. Okay, a lot of people have never even heard of it. So to meet someone that's actually been there is pretty cool. I was born there um, in 1981. And if you've been there, you know, it's, it's basically a farming type of a community down in the Yakima Valley. A lot of apples and uh, beef and just everything to do with kind of the farming community. And at one point, Yakima was known as the apple capital of the world until Wenatchee, Washington, beat us out one year. So the locals was still pretty sour about that one. But so I grew up um, kind of outside most of the time. I did have a lot of friends that played video games and were into sports and stuff. But most of my stuff was at the river or up in the mountains. I used to go backpacking a lot as a kid and fishing with all my cousins and stuff. So growing up for me was outdoors a lot, thankfully. When I was, I wanna say one and a half or two, my parents uh, split up from a very young age. Before I can remember, it was a two household type of uh, an upbringing. Initially what happened was my father was kind of 
not living such a great life. And my mom didn't really want me to be raised in that environment. So she made the decision to, you know, to, to take me and leave. And so about a year after that, year and a half, my dad ended up getting in trouble with the law and he went to prison. This was one of many, many stints that he would do in jail or prison throughout the course of my life. But this was the first one. So from the, about the time I was four or four years old, I want to say, to five years old, four or five. And like I said, it was five years that first time. I, I'm not exactly sure the particulars, but it was illegal stuff that he was doing. And it revolved around drugs. Until I was nine, almost 10 years old, he was in prison. And so those years, you know, are very influential. And I was an only child growing up, too. My dad wasn't there physically a lot when I needed him in those years. And my mom kind of struggled a lot with money and bouncing around, trying to give me the best she could. She didn't have a lot. You know, we, we lived with, we would stay with a lot of people. I remember I was in my early 20s once and I, I tried to go back and recount all the schools I had gone to over the course of my life. And it was like over 20 schools from elementary school up until I got my GED after I dropped out in 10th grade because I was working. I just didn't have the time to go to school. So we were just constantly moving around, very low income. But at the time, um, it really didn't affect me that much, I didn't think, because when you're when you're living in those conditions or in those situations, you don't, especially as a kid, I didn't really think about that stuff like my mom did. I wasn't worried about food on the table or brand new shoes. And honestly, I wasn't the kind of kid that really cared about that kind of stuff. I just really wanted to be in one spot. I hated moving. Just when we would get settled in, we'd move again. And so, and I was always the new kid. And growing up, like, and even now, I'm a very nice guy. I don't like to be confrontational if I don't have to be or any of that kind of stuff. Growing up like that, it kind of made me, with constantly going to new schools, I was constantly the new kid. With that comes, unfortunately, kids are mean sometimes. And I got picked on a lot because I was the new kid or I don't know if you know much about that side of the mountains in Washington, but a lot of times I would be the minority out of school, you know? Really? And so, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of my good friends are Hispanic, but I got ganged up on a lot, a lot, you know, at the new school. I found myself having to get in fights and stuff that I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want any part of this. You know, that went on for until I was about nine or 10. And then my dad got out of prison. And while my dad was, was in prison, he would send me, and I have every letter that he's ever sent me, and I, I have hundreds of them. He would send me at least like two letters a week. I would always know what he was thinking. He wasn't there physically, but he always knew like if I had a baseball game coming up or if I got in trouble at school or he was as involved as he could be uh, with the situation he was in. And my dad, my dad's a very smart guy. He just chose to assert himself uh, in different ways. A lot of that stuff was illegal. And so but he's a very smart guy. So while he was in prison, he became 
this guy that got a job. And then pretty soon they were like looking for inmates to help build a new part of the wing. And so he became like the foreman because he had construction skills. So he actually did fairly, you know, well for himself, I guess, in prison, as you can, you know, do. He was involved in trying to join programs and education and stuff. And he was, he was trying to use the system that was trying to help rehabilitate him. And so when he got out, it was huge for me, you know, I just wanted to go live with him and I didn't care where he was or what he was doing. And my mom really didn't want me to because a lot of reasons I would imagine, but she reluctantly, you know, let me go live with him. And I lived with him from the age of nine or 10 until I was about, I want to say I was 16. And it, in those years, we bounced around from, we were living with my uncle um, at the time, and he lived in, it's called Burien, Washington. They refer to it as Rat City. It's very low income projects. And there was like 12 of us living in this house. I think my dad was doing really good for a while, but living conditions, just um, hustling, I guess you would call it. And he started the, the wrong things again. And to try to improve our situation. You know, he was trying to make money. He, he didn't want us living with my job. And so eventually he bought a trailer. I remember this, it was crazy. He bought it up on the Indian Reservation in Auburn, Washington and had it towed down to our new house, our new uh, lot in the trailer park. And my dad rode inside of the trailer with like a walkie talkie, like talking. When I think back to some of this stuff, I'm like, yeah, maybe some of that was a little crazy, you know, but at the time you're a kid. And so, so we moved down there. And so I was probably 11 at the time. And so for the next five years, it was just a steady downhill progression for my dad and my stepmother at the time too. They were heavily on drugs. This was, I guess, back when the, the methamphetamine thing was like really starting to become like a problem everywhere like people were blowing up their houses and crazy and this was happening like in our neighborhood it got to the point where they started doing that kind of stuff they they went from using to he always has to just keep progressing and so he decided he was going to make it himself and that was probably about the last year i lived with him it didn't feel like it was that bad of a situation, but looking back on it now, for years now, that I've had time to think about it, you know, it was absolutely terrible. Random people, like, passed out on the couch. A couple more random people, like, in the kitchen, like, getting high. Trailer was just filled with this smell, like, chemicals. You know, we would run down to the river and maybe try to get somebody to buy us some beers. That was about as crazy as, as we got. Because I played sports. I, I was trying to be as involved with my own life as I could, but then I would come home to this. It, I mean, it got to the point where I remember one night, probably 13 or 14, and I was asleep on the couch. I was watching boxing or something. My dad was a huge boxing and like karate fan. So we would always watch that kind of stuff. So I was up late watching some videos and I fell asleep on the couch and I woke up and there was a naked man in the living room clawing at the carpet, ripping the, my, ripping the carpet up. And I'm like, what is going on here? So I'm like, dad, dad, you know, cause he's in the back room or whatever. And the guy looks up at me and I realized that one of the neighbor guys that looked like a couple of trailers down. And I'm like, oh my God, Dave, or whatever his name was. I'm like, what are you doing here? 
he didn't even look like a human. It, it was like a wild animal was in my living room. It was terrifying. And so he takes off running to like the back of the trailer and out the back door. And I'm like, oh my God, what just happened? My dad comes out and he's like, what was that all about? And I was like, dad, the neighbor guy was just in here and the carpet's all ripped up. You know, I told him what happened and he, and he was just like, oh yeah, Dave, he's probably just sleepwalking or blah, 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 blah. It was, a, it was like a brush off type of a thing. But that's just one of, I guess part of my brain probably tries to not think about those things, but that kind of stuff happened all the time. It was just such a common occurrence. It got to the point where I was just like, I, I was kind of hoping in the back of my mind that he would get caught so he could get clean one and that he would hopefully turn his life around because at the same time, my mom was living uh, on the other side of the state and she was doing pretty good. She was remarried to this Norwegian guy you know, they were starting their life together. They had plans on moving to Florida. At the same time, this is the last year of me living with my dad. He finally did get caught. It turned, and I didn't even know that this was going on. That's how crazy this was. He was cooking uh, drugs underneath our trailer. They had like a trap door in the master bedroom that they would go under, and they had this whole setup under there. It was me and my my stepbrother Ben, Jill, my step my stepmom's son, my brother, is a year older than me, and my best friend at the time, Daniel. He didn't have a place to live, so he was staying with us. So all three of us boys were living in there while all of this was going on underneath us. We could have been blown up at any moment for like a year. This was going on. He got busted, and they called my mom to come get me. That was the second time that my dad went to prison for like a long period of time. I think he ended up getting like three and a half year, years or four years that time that he had to do. And so I told you before, he went to prison for five years when I was a kid. So in between the, these two prison sentences are countless times of him having brushes with the law where he would go in and he just got lucky. I mean, you know, I think about it and he got off so many times, you know, he would go in for a month and somehow he'd get out. And th this went on uh, for a long time until this operation that he had going came to light. Everything that was in the house was now police evidence. So that means everything that I owned, you know, as a 15, 16 year old kid, it wasn't a lie, but I had like like my skateboard, um, my clothes, just all my stuff was in there and it was all seized. So I had nothing, absolutely nothing, which it's not the biggest thing in the world, but to a 16 year old who doesn't really have much, it was, it was devastating. I collected like um, antique beer signs, like the old neon beer signs. And I had, I had a lot of them and I would save money and buy them and all of that stuff got seized. And so I was really bummed out, obviously that my dad, was now going to go back to prison. And now I had to go live with my mom, which I don't think she really wanted me to come back and live with her. I don't know. You know, I think she was, her and my stepfather were doing pretty good. They had a big house in a nice neighborhood. And so I don't know, you know, I, I don't really know what the deal was. So I wouldn't live with her. And, you know, it was just a different life. I ended up meeting some kids in this neighborhood. They didn't live in the neighborhood, but I met them hanging around the neighborhood and they were troublemaker type kids were into like 
punk rock music and stuff like that. And at the time I was going to an alternative school because I had been kicked out of so many schools and I'd just been, I'd gotten into so many fights. I don't think my mom even wanted to risk it putting me in a regular school. So she just enrolled me into the alternative school there. It was called River's Edge. And I was there for maybe three weeks. And then I got kicked out of that school for getting in fights. And so what happened was I basically just started working full time. I got a job at Domino's Pizza and I would work and I would just work every day. And my, my boss, uh, John, he loved me. I was like, hey man, I, most kids my age are trying to get off of work. And I'm like, I just want to be here all the time and work like all the time, you know? I don't want to go home. I don't want to do any of this other stuff. I just want to work. And so I worked for quite a while. I, I want to say until I was probably 17 and a half. And then I got into an altercation with my mother. I don't even remember what it was, but me and her never kind of saw eye to eye. And basically it was, okay, well, you can't stay here anymore. And I, I didn't really have a lot of stuff. So I took my BMX bike and a backpack. I filled it up with some clothes. And I had my stepfather drive me down to the Greyhound bus station. And he gave me like 200 bucks in cash. He was like, hey, I don't want to see you go. But, you know, it's your mom. He was like, he was like there's not really anything I can do about it. He goes, if you need anything, you can call us. And it was tough. It was a very tough situation. You know, I'm still... I guess at the time I felt like I was older than, than I was because I'd been through a lot and, you know, it almost felt like uh, life was pulling me towards being on my own, you know, just so I could be on my own. It was almost like all these things were kind of dragging me down, you know, and so I got on a Greyhound bus and I went back over to the other side of the mountains, the Seattle side, and I ended up staying with my buddy Randy and his grandma and his mom. It was his grandma and his mom. And I got a job at a Domino's over there. I did that for about a year and a half. And I was living there the whole time. And then I got a call from my cousin, Mitch. And my cousin, Mitch, he's probably one of the people that I'm closest with in my life. I ran around with him when I was a little kid fishing. And in the mountains, you know, we have all the same interests. And he's always been like an older brother to me. He's a few years older than me. And he had gone up to Alaska. One of his buddies that was up there working in the commercial fishing industry said, hey, man, you got to come up here and, and try this fishing thing out for a summer. They'll pay for everything. They'll pay for your trip up. You just got to show up and work. That's it. They'll take care of everything. He spent a year up there and he called me. He's like, Nick, you got to come up here. They're looking for people that want to work hard all the time. That's all I want to do is just, you know, I'd work 24 hours a day if I could. And so I did very quickly. I, I, I went up there. And at the time I was, I was 19, I had actually met with an army recruiter. I had talked with him briefly. Nothing serious, but I just kind of wanted to see what it was. I asked him, uh, you know, how long do I have to commit to? Where would I go? You know, all these, all these questions. Because I come from a military family. My grandfather and his three brothers were all in World War II. Uh, my uncle was a Navy guy for 33 years. Uh, so I grew up hearing about all these military stories. Growing up, I kind of always had this fantasy of wanting to be a soldier, you know, or a Navy guy or a, a Marine or whatever. That was loosely there in my brain, but the opportunity for Alaska came. And I love I love my cousin Mitch so much. I, I'd follow him anywhere. And so he could have called me from Antarctica and been like, hey man, I got a job hunting penguins up here. You got to come up here. I'm on my way. Let's go. I wouldn't hunt penguins. I'm not saying I hunt penguins. I love penguins. 
And so I went up there. I vocally committed to a contract for Northwest Seafoods. It was the name of the company. They are now, I think, Trident Seafoods bought them. I'm sure you've heard of Trident Seafoods. It's like in between Juno and Ketchikan. So it's on the inside passage right there, right in the hub of the commercial fishing industry. Salmon, black cod, shrimp, crab, halibut, all of it. So, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I'm like, yeah, I grew up fishing. I know how to fish, you know. Fish is fish, right? What could be what could be the, 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 the issue here? I it took about three flights to get from Ketchikan. I took a ferry from Bellingham, Washington. It was like a two and a half day ferry ride because it was the cheapest way to get up there. And I took a ferry to I think Prince Rupert and I flew to Ketchikan and then I took another plane from Ketchikan to Petersburg. I'd never been on a small airplane like this. I hate I've hated to fly my whole life which is ironic because I later become a paratrooper in the army, but we'll get to that later. I finally get off of this tiny airplane in Petersburg and it's, Petersburg is just a tiny island. It's literally an island in Southeast Alaska with hundreds of bears, moose, and you get off the plane and the company van picked me up. They took me to the plant and I was able to meet the owner. His name was Dave Norquist. Really nice guy, young guy, very fast forward moving they had just reopened the plant i guess in the last several years so he was trying to really grow the facility so he was bringing in employees from all over the world i worked with guys from the philippines china south america australia canada it was great i was able to meet all of these different personalities from all over the world and so i, I get done meeting with dave he lets me know uh, everything's covered and then we will just take it out of your first paycheck and then after that, you can just make your monthly payment for the boarding house. You know, and then after that, you, you take care of your own meals, which you work at a, a seafood processing plant. There's a lot of extra stuff. And so basically, I ended up eating the freshest seafood in the world for free for like three years. Still like seafood or are you sick of it? Not, uh, I don't really eat salmon anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I still love crab. Dave was a really nice guy. He welcomes me and he says, go downstairs and meet your boss. And so I go down there and my, my boss, Jason, which was also my cousin Mitch's boss at the time, Mitch was off. He was at the bunkhouse, like sleeping for a few hours in between shifts. That's how it works. I didn't know this yet either. He's like, hey, you know, nice to meet you. We're glad to have you. And I'm like, he goes, you're going to be working over here, you know, because it was like a an assembly line kind of of jobs throughout the plant that you would do to get the fish from the boat into a freezer truck and send it to who knows where in the world, Japan, Seattle, Chicago, wherever. You're going to be working over here. And I think my first job was stuffing crushed ice into the belly of cleaned fish and then packing them in these little cardboard plastic or uh, wax boxes and we were shipping them to Japan at the time. And we would do 33,000 pounds at a time, and then they'd ship it out, and then we would just do another 33,000 pounds over and over and over again. He put me to work right away, my very first shift, three hours after I landed. I, I hadn't even had a chance to go see where I was going to get lemon. My cousin walks in, and he's like, oh, hey. And he starts giving me a hard time right away. He goes, Jason, what are you doing having this guy put ice in fish? He's a strong young kid. He's got a strong back. Let's get him over on a hard job where he can really, you know, pull his weight, pick up our, our output a little bit more. So what happens, the process is called breaking, breaking the rack. 
the fish come in from the uh, the dock. It gets sorted by species and weight. It gets cleaned, and then it gets laid out onto these trays and blast frozen in these massive freezers. So then they roll out a big stack and just gets like 13 trays, these metal trays with the fish on them. So me, and then there's another guy on the other side, flip the rack up and slam it on this metal table and it breaks the fish off of the metal rack. And then we throw the fish into this big tank and it glazes the fish with a, a salt mixture and then it goes on to the next process. So I would do this literally for 18 hours, you know, and I loved it. I loved it. It was so great because I grew up playing sports. I, I, I just, my mom always said I was ADHD, but never diagnosed because she didn't want to believe it. I just have this abnormal amount of energy and so does my cousin. And so we just became this, and Jason, my boss was the same kind of guy. And so it just became this obsessive work environment. It was fantastic. I loved it. He would blast the music up, like punk rock music. He was from like Northern California and we would just work our asses off for like 18 hours a day, six days a week for like six months until really we had a break. I did that for three years, uh, 19, 20 and 21 were the years that I did that. That's how I spent those three years was, was up in Alaska. Can I back you up and ask you a few questions about what we've talked about Absolutely. so far? Absolutely. When your dad was in prison that first time, did your mom take you to visit him? Uh, no. So uh, my mom and my dad did not get along for many, many years. My mom didn't really talk well about my dad. I mean, obviously he wasn't the best guy, but she never painted him in a good light. She wasn't really concerned about me going to see my dad while he was locked up. But my Aunt Shelley which was my, my dad's older sister, he has two older sisters. She would take me and my grandma Clark, uh, their mom, my, my dad's mom, to go and see him. So I got to see him during that time. I probably got to see him three or four times a year with my grandma and my aunt. I was able to, you know, they take you out into a little grassy area and you can visit on a bench or whatever for, X amount of time. I remember, I was probably six or seven. This is one of the programs that my father had joined while he was in there. There, it was uh, the state prison had offered like a leather working class. And where they where they were in prison in, in uh, over in eastern Washington was very scrub desert kind of land, a lot of snakes, and so there was an abundance of rattlesnakes. They would make these belts and all kinds of stuff out of like snake skin. And so he made me this snake skin belt and I still have it, it says Nick on it. It's leather and snake skin. And I have that as a memento. He made that while he was in prison for me when I was probably six years old. My mom never pushed to, for me to really see him while he was locked up at all. And, and like I said before, I don't think she really wanted me going and staying with him when he got out either, but. I think she knew that if she tried to keep me from him or keep us apart, that would only make things worse. Did so, she know anything about what was going on there while you were living with your dad? Did she have an inkling? Did you see her during that time? Yeah, very rarely. So right before my dad got in trouble, 
the second time when I was a teenager, my mom had gotten a car accident. This was literally within all within that same year, with my dad getting busted and my mom getting into this serious car accident. Uh, her and my stepdad were rear-ended at an off-ramp. They're at a, you know, an off-ramp or whatever, and they got rear-ended. And it really messed her up to this day. I don't know if she knew specifically that that was the environment I was in, but she knew my dad. Like that's the reason that she left him in the first place. And and I I look exactly like my father. And so I know that that didn't help her, uh, <laughs> you know, just in a, a humanism type of a way, you know what I mean? And as a kid, I understood that. And it's just weird to think about it because me and my mom had a very grown up relationship very early. We were just forced to deal with a lot of stuff, I guess, that a, a mom and a, a kid wouldn't have to, you know, when they were that young, like, cause she just worked, she had to work so much and you know, I would come home from school and it would just be me, very young, cooking for myself, stuff that you, you shouldn't be doing as, as a kid, operating the stove. That's just the way that I was. So I, I don't think that she knew specifics, but I know for a fact she knew that it wasn't the best environment. She knew that my dad always had that stripe down his back. He always had that edge to where time and time and time again, he would get the chance to, you know, to make it better or turn it around. And he would always end up sliding back down that slope. I think she knew that it was probably a bad situation. There's no way she knew that it was as bad as it was. Because when I did talk to her, you know, I just lied to her. I told her everything was fine. But there were stretches where I wouldn't see my dad for two or three weeks. He would be out doing his, his hustling thing or whatever he was doing. And that's why I ended up dropping out of school and working full time and stuff because nobody cared if I was going to school or not. You get home from school and your parents ask you how you do and you got any homework. And I don't think I ever remember doing homework, never once in my life. I, I didn't I didn't care. I, nobody told me that this is going to pay off one day. My thought process was I need to provide for myself. And I had a lot of friends like that during that time when I was a teenager. Uh, that were going through the same thing. So I kind of had a group of friends. And we, a lot of those guys I'm, I'm still friends with today, and, and some of them are doing great. Some of them aren't with us anymore. It's, it's really tough uh, because I know that my life could have gone either way a million different moments along the way, but you know, someone was looking out for me. That's heartbreaking for me already, Nick. You had a very traumatic childhood. Did you feel betrayed both by your dad going to prison and then you said going back to live with your mom, you felt like she really didn't want you there? That is so hard for a young kid. Are those feelings that you had to deal with later that you were able to overcome? Because you had to have been hurt by both. I can't even imagine. Yeah, you know, and and a lot of this stuff is, I'm a very forgiving type of a person. I never, I never want to blame anybody for anything. I always want to try to put myself in somebody else's shoes because I feel like judging someone is, and everybody's quick. We all judge, whether it's in our brain instantly, and then we have time to think about, like, ah, you know, maybe I shouldn't. And that's just kind of always how I've been. But you knew that none of this was your fault. I mean, you were just the victim right. of whatever was yeah. going on with both of them. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and my mom. 
and my dad had very hard upbringings as well. You know, they dealt with very traumatic stuff growing up. You know, my father, his dad was a World War II veteran, and he was over there for like three and a half years from Italy all the way to Austria. I mean, he saw some terrible, terrible stuff, and he brought all that back with him, and he used to beat the hell out of my dad. He ended up developing a tumor behind his his eye. By the time they found it, he was dead like less than six months later. And he was in his early 50s, you know, and I worry about that, that kind of stuff, because I was a combat veteran and a lot of that stuff is stressful. But when, when I think about like, do I blame my mom, do I blame my dad, or whose fault is it? I just always try to keep in mind because I, because I, there was a time when I was extremely upset at both my parents. I was upset with my dad for the way he was living his life. At one point, I remember, uh, I remember I was fourteen or fifteen, and me and my brother Ben. I think I had just, I don't know, it must have been a baseball practice or something, and we had come home, and there's ambulances and all this commotion at the uh, trailer and we're like what the hell's going on here you know and jill is like there she's like oh my god oh my god and they're pulling my dad out on a stretcher you know and i can see him he's blue in the face and i'm like what the hell's going on she's not telling us what's happening you know what i mean she didn't want to tell us happening so the paramedic told me what and my brother what happened and what had happened was my dad tried to hang himself he had tried to commit suicide my stepmother found him i don't know if she found him in time or if he had failed to properly do it or what i don't know but that was tough and so in my mind after that incident i remember i was so angry at him because i felt like he was trying to get out of it you know like trying to like leave us oh man this is too hard you know i can't deal with any of this of course my dad he recovers very quickly. And I told him, I was like, man, you got to stop. You can't do this anymore. You know, you, I, I'll never, like, I don't, I don't even want to be, I can't, I can't be around you if you're going to do this. And so it was, yeah, yeah, okay. But we just went back to life. The following year is when that big bust happened. So, so basically what I said to him just didn't matter. And so I was even more angry at him. And then my mom, I don't know, uh, like before I was born, my mom had another another child and his name was Matt, Matthew. And he died of SIDS. There's just a lot of layers to I, And so like that just goes back to me understanding how my mom must have felt with all this kind of stuff. I'm not trying to make excuses for anybody, but you understand what I'm saying? When I, I just try to put myself in her shoes to think what she must think. And I know it's terrible to say, but to have to look at me and see my dad, because like I said, we're identical. It's, it's like uncanny. I always carried that with me and I always felt like sometimes she would see me as him. And I, would, I got in trouble a lot. You said you got in a lot of fights. Yeah. Were those fights that you provoked or were those fights that you felt like you had to defend yourself? It was definitely defending myself. Yeah, like I said, I tried to avoid confrontation and conflict and because I saw it every day you know I saw it every day 
you know, just being surrounded by junkies and criminals and people that don't care. They don't care if they go to jail. They don't care if they overdose. They don't care if they wake up in a recycling newspaper bin the next morning. They just don't care. I don't know. But like, again, seeing that and I don't, I don't know exactly, but I have a lot of friends that have died from using drugs. You know, kids that I grew up with during that time and it's scary because upsets me too because my dad was out there making drugs and, and putting drugs out on the street and adding to the problem. And in the meantime, not really caring what I did. Me and my friends could have been in the back room shooting up heroin for all he knew. He wouldn't have known because he wasn't there. My stepbrother, Ben, he moved out. He went back and moved with his dad. And so he got out of the situation uh, before the bus. Well, I think it was right after when my dad tried to hang himself is when he left. His dad came and got him. So Ben was had a new life. He's doing great now. He ended up joining the Coast Guard, and now he's an electrician, and so he's doing great. But that's what was going on. I, 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 I was upset at my dad until just a few years ago, maybe like four years ago. And I had a heated conversation with him over the phone. And just for some reason that night, I couldn't sleep. And we were like texting and I finally just called him. We started talking and the conversation went to life. And I just unloaded on him. He didn't know how to take it. I don't think he was. And I felt so bad after that because I was like, oh, shit, man. I could tell that he was really hurt by what I was saying to him. And disappointed because because I know that he was doing everything and I'm not making excuses for him. I'm just, I feel like sometimes I'm too forgiving of a person, but I feel like if, if I keep hard feelings like that against people that I really love and care about, it's just going to destroy me. And that's what it almost did. I lost my father a couple years ago and that conversation that we had two years prior, we were never really able to talk about that, to really kind of squash that and figure out some of those problems. The, the moment I found out that he, he died suddenly in a, a car accident, and the moment I found out, it was like everything was gone instantly. Any, any bad feelings I had towards him were just gone. It was really hard, you know, to lose him. It still is. I don't know. I, I, was, I just always rooted for my dad. I was always rooting for him. I always felt like more of a friend or a brother than a, than a kid to him because he was always screwing up. I just wanted him to win. I just wanted him to do good. Not so I could do good, just so he could do good. I spent too much time worrying about him to really be upset at him. And, and I think this is unfair to my mom because I feel like I was more upset at her growing up than I was at my dad. And really just for no reason, because I wasn't able to see my dad as much as I wanted to. And she always used to tell me that he was a bad guy and he didn't give a crap about me. And maybe part of that was true, but she never made an effort to let me know that I needed to have a, a relationship with my dad. She didn't really put too much emphasis on that. And I don't blame her. You know, I don't blame her. Well, you know, I think you, you touched on that, that trauma can definitely be generational. You experience trauma, your parents experience trauma. And from the little bit that I know about you, I know that you have really tried to break that cycle with your own family. We are in Alaska now. You've done three years. What comes up next? Okay, so 
it is my final year in Alaska. Um, I didn't know this at the time. I was considering moving up there full time and getting off season work during the winter, working in the logging industry, just any off season non fishing type jobs to keep me in Alaska, making money, being active, because I really just didn't want to come back down to the lower 48, they call it. Yeah, I miss some of my friends and stuff, but while I was up there, you know, I maybe once a year I'd take a week or two and I'd come back down and I'd have all this money because I, I, I spent money on nothing. It was just this amazing life up there, you know, it was just work in my spare time. I would just go fish or hike. Like, so it was just the two things I love to do the most. And I was with my cousin. So that last year I was up there is when 9 11 happened. So salmon season was done and we had just finished up black cod and we were transitioning into side striped shrimp so they were getting ready to dock all of the black cod boats all of the longliners and send out all the shrimp boats and so they were they were in the middle of that process when 9-11 happened and we were like i think we were cleaning or something everybody's sanitizing the inside of the uh plant and the, they call it the harbor master it's just, it's just outside of the front entrance of northwest and it's where you go down onto the docks and there's like a guy with a booth here. You can get all the title information and stuff for fishing licenses, all that kind of stuff. And there's a TV up there that usually has like the ranger report, the uh, the fire level and all that uh, bear danger, <laughs> which is- That's important. Only in Alaska, yeah. Bear danger is low today, thank God. <laughs> but moose danger is at an all time high. So watch <laughs> out for the moose. So all of a sudden, um, the intercom comes over and it was like, everybody head out, everybody head out to the Harbor Master, head out to the Harbor Master. So everybody comes out, because it's literally right outside of the front door of Northwest. You come out of these big swinging doors and there's the break room and then there's the Harbor Master. And you can see the TV. And on the TV is, is are the buildings, are the, nine, are the towers, the, the, the twin towers, you know? And I'm a West Coast guy that, didn't really watch a lot of TV growing up, reading newspapers. I was so out of touch with the rest of the world. These are literally the first times consciously that I'm looking at the Twin Towers. I don't even know what that is, really. I'm not a New York person, you know. This isn't registering to me like it would other people. Our OSHA guy, the guy that did all of our inspections, that was at the plant, he was from New York. And he wore a New York Yankee beanie all the time. And really cool guy. You know, really New York guy, you know, hey, hey, come on, get back to work, you slack asses, you know, no more cigarette breaks, get back to work. And so Gary comes out, he's like, hey, what's going on? He starts freaking out. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like a serious situation. Boom, the tower comes down. And, and I, it was just so incredible. And I couldn't even tell you what time it was. I want to say it was dark. You know, we, we didn't really work on a daylight, nighttime shift. It was just, we ran in shifts. So your shift was from X time to X time, you know, daylight or whatever had nothing to do with it. Nobody did anything else but work. We come out, I don't know what time it was, but it was very early or late. Gary just has an emotional breakdown and I'll never forget it. You know, he's just bawling. The town falls, you know, and you, you've seen it. The other one goes and it became this, what are you supposed to do? I mean, let alone the people that are there at the bottom of this huge, I mean, it was, I mean, you know, you've seen it, but you're like in another world up in Alaska on an island. I've been working for three years straight 
I literally don't watch TV. I don't read newspapers. I'm just trying to forget the whole world. You know, I'm building this new life for myself. And 9-11 happened. It wasn't instant for me. Um, I didn't instantly say, all right, I need to go to a recruiter's office right now. But I knew that I couldn't stay in Alaska. I knew that I had to get back down to the rest of society for whatever reason. Because my cousin had left at the beginning of that year. He had met a girl up there. And they decided that they were going to move back down to Seattle and start a life down there, right? Because she was from there and she didn't want to stay in Petersburg, Alaska. for the Imagine rest of that. Yeah. So, so they took off and he was like, you going to stay up there? I'm like, hell yeah, I'm staying. I'm not leaving this. You're going to have to pry this out of my hands. Because this is just like, you know, it was just too good to be true. It was like living at a summer camp. That's not like my whole- idea of a summer camp, though. <laughs> That must be for very few like yourself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it was just because I think I had such a lot on my mind with how I lived my life up to that point. This was a chance for me to really prove myself as part of like a serious thing. Like, you know, I worked for Domino's and and I was a ship supervisor, which was a big deal to me at 16. You know, I was in charge of people, in charge of money. But up here, I mean, we were in charge of millions and millions of dollars worth of product the freshest and Dave would let you know that you know he'd come down on the floor you know how are my how's my sockeye doing you know each one of those totes goes for like 860 dollars over in Tokyo you know so he's keeping an eye on everything and stuff which I thought was good so you there's a lot of pride in your work and I knew that I explained the breaking rack to you not everybody could do that I took pride in that you know I was one of the guys that could just do that over and over and over, day in, day out, they would offer me another job while I was in the freezer, and I would deny it. I said, no, this is where I want to be. And when, when my shift was over in the freezer, I'd head straight out to the dock, and I'd say, hey, Lucas, do you need somebody to help out on the dock? They, they'd send me down in the hole of a boat, and so I would pitch fish out of a boat for four hours, you know, 40,000 pounds of salmon, just to get extra hours to be the guy that everybody could rely on. I, I worked in every department. I just picked up all the hours I could, you know, I never said no, you know, like, hey, we need to volunteer. I'm there, you know, let's do it. So, yeah, so that's what I was doing uh, at the time when, when 9-11 happened, my, my last year there. You came down to the lower 48 then because you felt like you had to be back. Yes. Let's see. I was 20 or 21 at the time. Yeah, because it was, was it 2000 or 2001? I was 20 or 21 at the time. And I came back down, moved in, I rented a room from a friend of mine that I'd grown up with and his significant other. And they had a baby at the time and they ended up having another baby. And ironically enough, so now I'm back in the lower 48, right? And so I need a job. I call my cousin Mitch. I say, hey, what are you doing, bro? You got a job? Uh, You need somebody? And he was very surprised that I had left. All these people had called him, Anthony, all these people that he knew up there, Nick left, you know, like, why? You know, I just wanted to come back. And I don't even really know why I came back. Maybe it was 9-11, I don't know. But here I was back there. And so Mitch says, yeah, he goes, actually, right now, I am working for a concrete company. I'm finishing concrete. I've been doing it since I got back through a guy he knew. And he was doing really good. And they needed a laborer. I was like, I don't even care how much it pays. 
or where it's at, I'm ready to work. So I started working concrete in Des Moines, Washington. And so I'd wake up at four o'clock every morning. I'd drive up to Des Moines and I'd work. And we worked from Tacoma to Seattle. We would work all over the place. And we did custom concrete. We did a lot of executives from Microsoft and London Fog and Columbia, just these crazy concrete stairwells and floating patios. And I remember doing these jobs. These are like movie star, big way houses. And like, I wish I could have this. I want this so bad. Don't we all? <laughs> you know what I mean? But in my mind, you know, it's because it's like, man, I know I work harder than these guys. I'm working harder than these guys right now. In reality, you know, that's not how it works. That's not how life works, especially in this country. So I just put my nose down. I was very thankful to have a job and to be back. And I want to say probably about eight or nine months of this. Actually, probably closer to a year. So this was like 2002, maybe 2003. My dad, he got out of prison again. He was locked up when I had come back from Alaska. He was locked up at the time. And so he wasn't in prison, though. He was at like a regional, a regional justice center. It was a jail. They decided to just keep him there, probably for financial purposes, because it costs a lot of money to send someone to prison. So basically, he sat there for a year and a half. So he got out, and him and my stepmom were still together. So I started kind of hanging around him again. You know, I mean, I'm working a lot. I'm working basically all day, every day. And it became this thing again where I was with my cousin and he's a workaholic. And our boss was the same way. Again, he's like, you guys want to work this weekend? You guys want to work Saturday and Sunday? I'll pay you double time. We're like, hell yeah, let's do it. And so quick story, uh, one of the jobs we did, downtown Seattle, FAO Schwartz, the big Toy Story so they were going out of business in downtown Seattle. They're down there on the corner of fifth or fourth and whatever it is, right there. They had the big bear, right? The big brass bear. A guy in uh, Gig Harbor, he bought the bear for like $40,000. He was going to have the bear transported on a truck and a ferry out to Gig Harbor. And our boss, Chuck, contracted to demo because it was on a special concrete pad. So he contracted, he got the contract to break that up, to demo it. And me and my cousin were the, were the two guys that went out to do that. We were on the news. It was like this big news thing. Oh, they're moving the bear, you know. And me and Mitch are just standing there on jackhammers waiting for him to move it so we can break up this concrete. So I was doing that, you know, basically working six, seven days a week again. But I was back down with my friends and all these people that I'd grown up with that were not trying to better their lives. They were doing the same things. Even my roommate at the time, uh, the guy I told you about, Jesse and his wife, he started really getting into drugs. And after their second child, he would later go on to lose everything, uh, end up on the streets, and end up ODing on Oxycontin. He OD'd and passed away about five years ago. And so his sons don't have a dad. And that was just one of, you know, six or seven of my buddies growing up. So I, I leave Alaska, and to this day, I don't know why, but I think it's just everything happens for a reason. Ener- the energy or God or whoever was telling me that I needed to be back. Maybe it was to be there with Jesse and his 
significant other because now after he passed away she had to raise these boys on her own and she's doing great now she's got a great job she was able to turn her life around so you just never know what's going to lead to what so here i am back in in auburn washington where i was living around all these drug people and my, my dad was living just up the street and he was he was getting right back into it you know he's going right back into what he was doing i really wasn't super excited or super pumped to like build this new life with my dad you know because i knew that that it was a fantasy you know what i mean it, it just wasn't going to happen because as long as he is living this life under the influence as long as you're not seeing through clear eyes like that and really paying attention to what's happening in your life and and who you're affecting that, that was the resentment and and that that is where the anger if i have any anger towards him that's where it comes from is that i always felt like he was selfish and he just never and they say that when you're an addict it's just hard it's hard to say no and it's hard to do this and hard to do that you're addicted and whatever but i didn't see it that way you know a part of me was just like all right enough is enough people that need you you got to just stop you got to just stop and I was doing really good, you know. I mean, I had all my own stuff. I was in a position where I had my own car and I had money in the bank. And like Jesse and Nicole, who I was living with, towards the end there, uh, before he lost everything, they'd be, they'd be laid on rent or whatever, and I'd be able to cover it. And I wouldn't even worry about it because I just, man, I felt so bad for those kids because a lot of me saw myself because they don't, they don't know what's going on. Nicole, uh, my friend and the mother, she was such a good person, so headstrong, and she ended up leaving Jesse, just like my mom with my dad. And she's very brave for doing that. And I told her this, you know, she's very strong, and and her kids, her her sons will see that. They won't know about those hard times. They won't know about all that stuff because their mom has done such a great job to show them that no matter what is going on in life you know you can you can change the cycle you can you don't have to live in your dad's footsteps you don't have to end up like him and so i was seeing this firsthand and so my dad wasn't i mean yeah he, he wanted to hang out with me and, and see me and stuff but you know i was working all the time and he was working all the time too and so when i would see him there would be stretches of time that would go go along and I go up to his place, and the best I can explain this place was a compound. Every time I went up there, it just got worse and worse, just with him being on edge, and there'd be a new car in the driveway, or some new outdoor equipment, or a storage unit locker thing is there now, and I'm like, what is going on here, you know? Like, I've seen this before. I've seen this before down in the trailer park where we lived when he started getting really bad into drugs and he was trying to create his own little world for him and all these people that he was doing all this stuff with. And they were all just feeding off of each other, you know, and they're just making it worse for him. And they don't know any difference because their only objective is to get high. And I'm older, I'm, I'm a grown man at this point. 
I didn't really want to be around it at all. But I love my dad. And so I, I would try to see him and I would try to, you know, do the best I could, I guess, to not lose touch with him. But, but because I, I refuse to go down this road of I'm going to set the terms or, or we're not going to have a relationship together, you know, because I know that that's not going to happen. I know he's not going to give this up at this point. And so it's on me. I'm, I'm either, I have to just say, I can either have my dad like this or I'll have no dad at all. I chose to have my dad, you know, I'll take, I'll take what I can get. It was a weird relationship. It was during those couple years where I was doing concrete up until 2004. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I wasn't happy. I felt like I was burnt out. I felt like I wasn't really headed anywhere. I didn't really know what I was doing. And so at this time, my mom and my stepfather decide they're going to move to Florida, down to Spring Hill, Florida. They've been planning it for um, years, talking about it. And then finally, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. They sold the house. And so my father-in-law is very wealthy. I didn't mention this before, but his father, Leif I, was a Norwegian diplomat. He was the one who signed the revised peace treaty between Norway and the United States back in the 60s. And so I had this guy for a grandfather. And, and I mean, like they lived in this mansion in Bothell, you know, in this like super nice area. My stepfather, Chris, says, I will pay you $1,000 cash if you drive, because they had two cats and they didn't want the cats to fly down there. If you drive your mom's cats down to Florida, <laughs> you can't make this up. He said, I will give you my credit card, gas, any hotel room you want to stay in, stop as much as you want, and I'll give you a thousand bucks cash. But you got to drive those cats all the way down to Florida from Seattle. I said, sure, I'll do it. I quit my job. More of a, I'm taking off for a while because my boss, you'll always have a job here. It was such a small company and my cousin worked there. So I, you know, if I wanted to go back, I could, but I missed my mom. You know, I've seen her in a really long time, really miss it. Like a mother and son. I mean, there would be periods of time where I'd go two and a half, three years and I wouldn't see her many times in my life. My stepfather called me and asked me, he said, sure, why not? impulsively, just like I left Alaska. Sure, why not? Let's do it. I went to their house and I helped them pack up the ABF trailer. We packed up the whole house. They had way too much stuff. They sent the trailer and they flew down to Florida, first class. I was stuck with the cat. The <laughs> I hope you had them in uh, their little uh, containers on the way there. I did. I okay. did. I made sure to go to the veterinarian and get some of the some of those cat pills and um, <laughs> they slept the whole way basically i'd stop every night at a nice hotel single bed i didn't want to throw my stepdad's money around but i was taking advantage of the situation i can't lie about that it was it was kind of cool and me and him were really cool you know we had a weird relationship but he didn't have any kids and so i was kind of like his only son so i spend like it must have taken me a week and a half maybe two weeks to drive down there, you know? And I get down there and I help unload the trailer and I'm there for maybe, maybe, and I have no plans to do anything because I know I can get a job at Domino's anywhere in the country, anytime I want, anytime I want, you know? I have, I have these Domino's references in my back. connections. 
So I wasn't worried about, you know, not being able to find a job or anything like that. I was just kind of hanging around down there. And I got into golf. I met a guy randomly at a, I played billiards. It was one of the, my hobbies that I did when I wasn't working. I would shoot pool. I was at a little bar to shoot my my mom and stepdad's new house in Florida. Really nice, high class bar. I'm I'm in there like shorts and a tank top. So I'm shooting pool. It was like a little five dollar buy-in tournament. And I meet this guy and he likes me. You know, we're talking to each other, you know, and we're really hitting it off. He's like, hey, you play golf? I'm like, no. I play baseball. He goes, You want to go golfing? I said, sure. I start going golfing with this guy. We we become friends. And he owns a apparel company. And he it's like a startup. So like he's at the very infancy of it, but he's doing very well for himself. He was he was maybe 10 years, so he's probably in his mid-30s. His wife was my age, and I would get a house, a big house, his own golf cart. And so I'm like, wow, this is very impressive. And I started getting to know him. And it turns out that he was a veteran. Mm. He had he had served four years. And this was pre-9-11. This was back in the 90s or whenever he had served. He told him it changed his life. It told him it changed his life on leadership and business and management and all that. And that's how he was able to do so well with this company. And I told him, well, you know, I always thought about joining the Army or Navy or whatever. And I thought about it. He's like, well, you should go talk to a recruiter. And so I said, like, yeah, maybe I will. And so at this point, I was probably down at my, my mom's for like four or five months at this time. I'm just hanging out. I have a lot of money in the bank from Alaska and concrete. You know, I'm, I'm doing good. Um, and uh, when I moved down there to Florida, I quit smoking cigarettes. I was kind of a, I smoked cigarettes, like when I was up in Alaska and I had to concrete. And like I said, everything happens for a reason. I just, for some reason, I quit. I don't even know why I quit. And I'm getting in pretty good shape. And then me and this guy have this conversation about, What's going to happen? I'm like, you know, I'm going to go down there and talk to a recruiter. So initially, I went down to talk to a Navy, the Navy recruiters because my uncle Glennie was in the Navy for like 33 years. And growing up, I always looked up to him. He would come back from Singapore or Italy or Spain or Australia. And you're like, oh, wow, you know. And he had a motorcycle that he took all over the world. I'm like, man, that's awesome. I want to do that, you know. That's what I want to do. I want to be my Uncle Glennie now. I want to travel the world and be him in the Navy. I go down to talk to the Navy recruiter, and he's not there. They must have been out to lunch, or they just weren't there, right? So the Army recruiter is standing out in a little breezeway. He's smoking, he's smoking a cigarette. It's like, in, it's like in a movie or a, or a novel, you know, like one of these dark novels where this guy is just like lurk, lurking in the shadows. <laughs> he's like, hey, young man. You uh, you looking for something? Why don't you come in and talk to me for a second? And so that's how it happened. We went in. So what do you what do you want to do? And I told him. I said, Well, I'm trying to join the Navy. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, they have good programs. You know, all the services have good programs. Blah blah blah. He's like, But what do you really want to do in the service? I had no idea. I have no clue. The only thing I know about the military is my uncle, who worked in the engine room on destroyers. So he worked the bottom of these ships. And so I was kind of like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. I told him my grandfather was an army guy and I guess he was airborne qualified too. I was like, that sounds pretty cool. Scared to death of airplanes. I don't really like heights. I, I don't know if I was scared of heights, but I didn't really like them. 
but they're offering bonuses for people who sign up for the Airborne. It's only like a three-hour bus ride from the Brooksville Mets up to Fort Benning. So it's a real short trip. You don't even have to get on an airplane, right? He said, you can join the delayed entry program too, which will give you up to six months if you want to spend time with your family, get your affairs in order, whatever, uh, before you have to actually leave for, for Fort Benning. Impulsively, again, he's telling me everything I want to hear because you could have presented me with any any option here, as long as it's something that gets me going, gets my wheels moving again, you know, because I'm stuck in Florida here and I just want to get something else going. And it just felt good. It felt right. And he goes, well, you have to pass the uh, army physical fitness test. His basic thing. He goes, can you run? I said, mm, not really. I said, I play baseball. So I run, I run short distances and then I stop. And then I run again and then I stop. He goes, well, he goes, you got to be able to run two miles in under like 13 minutes or something. I was like, Shh. I was like, shit, that's, I'm like, you got to run the whole time. Huh? He's like, yeah. I said, okay, okay. He goes, but you have like a couple of months to get ready and you got to do so many pushups. I was like, okay. So I just started running every day down to Florida. I hated Florida, the weather. It was so humid, you know, it's so hot every day. You get out of the shower, you can't even dry off. So that's what I was getting myself ready for the army so so here so here so here i am you know down in florida with my mom and my mom had no idea what i was doing i hadn't even told her that i had committed it i'm just waiting for the right time to tell her because i know she's going to freak out because she's not she's going to say no no she's not a fan of the government she's not a fan of the war she's not a fan of any of it the last thing she wants to do is send her only son you know and then I'm going to have to tell her that I joined the infantry and the airborne infantry at that. And I, I didn't realize how dangerous it was at the time. I was very green, as they say. I, I was just very motivated. I was very excited. And so finally, I got around to telling my mom. I was like, look, I, I made a commitment at the Brooksville recruiter's office. I said, I go to take the MEPS exam in like three months in Tampa. She was like, what? For what? For what? What are you? What are you doing? You know, and I, I, I'm like, I joined the, I'm joining the army. I'm gonna join the army. She was like, No, you're not. No, no. So it was instantly this. She, she was not happy about it. Did not want me to go. There was nothing happy about it. You know, so it became this. I, I just wanted her to say, Good luck or something. You know, anything positive. You know, I, I knew my stepdad was was very excited. But he couldn't show it because he had to, he had to live with my mom, <laughs> so he was smart when he needed to be. So and so finally, my mom came to the realization that you know he's going, he's gonna go. And and this was uh, like I said, I think I had about three months before I took the maps. And then if I got for the infantry, it's like extremely low. You 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 could basically. You know, if you can write your name, they will accept you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No disrespect to the college graduate infantry out there, but um, and so all I had to do was basically just take the test. So I had about three months with my mother to hang out, and and our relationship was different for those last last three months. I mean, she ended up going to the bar with me a couple times, shooting pool with me. We had some of these interactions that 
I don't think we probably would have had if I wouldn't have been leaving. If I would have just been going back to Seattle, I don't think it would have been that dynamic. She was certain that I was going to be killed. She was certain that I was going to be shot down on my way in. I mean, she was probably already writing the president a letter before I ever left for Fort Benning to start, start my training. So, when did you leave for basic? I left for basic Christmas of 2005. So before Christmas of 2005, I went to Benning and they put us in hold at 30th AG. It's like a, it's like an in-processing facility. They basically keep you awake for like four days, shave your head, and just move you from room to room. It's like a, it's a psychological thing. It's just part of the whole processing thing. And so during this time, this is what this is when they call Christmas Exodus. So all of the guys that are already in basic got to go home for Christmas. And we were in this in-processing thing because we had just come from our family. So we didn't get the pleasure of going home. I was in 30th AG during Christmas. And then I think January 6th or 7th of 2006 is when they loaded us up on the bus, uh, moved us to another part of Fort Benning, which was where we started our, our infantry training, which was a very rude awakening for me. <laughs> Why so, was it a rude awakening? You were in good shape, I thought. I was, yeah. I think physically I was ready. Um, mentally, no. Mentally, no. No, not at all. But I was, I'll say this, I was more mentally ready than a lot of the other guys because of my uncle. He told me before I left, he said, the only way to get ahead and, you know, to not fall on anybody's radar, he said, keep your mouth shut and you raise your hand when anybody asks for a volunteer. Right. And I'm thinking, that's how I do all my jobs. That's how I work all the time anyway. I said, so I will just keep that in mind. And so that's what I did. I kept it out shut. I tried not to get noticed too much. You know, you try to. I've heard that you stay in the middle, right? Yeah. Because you can't fly. You can't fly too low. Then they can pick you up with the binoculars. They see you and you're a group. And so what happens to the few happens to the many. I really enjoyed basic. I loved it. I really loved it. I mean, I was, again, I was part of this thing that was something that we were all working towards, whether we were learning a new weapon system or we were learning how to read a map or we were on some grueling, you know, 14 mile march or just all these things that you've never done that before you do it, you're like, there's no effing way I'm going to be able to do this. Like, this is going to kill me. And, and then you got to do something else and something else. And then at some point, it goes from it's breaking you, and this is what they do. They, they tell you, we need to break you down before we can start to build you up again. We need to break you down to the basics, to where you can understand what we're trying to teach you, to where you can operate on a subconscious level, to where when you're out there, when you're, when you're downrange and you get into these high energy situations, your training just kicks in and you don't even think about it. It's right? muscle just, memory. Exactly. And so that's what we were doing. And... I enjoyed it because we were all going through it together. So I was here with my team. I was here with all these new friends. And infantry training is very long. It was like, I think we graduated at the beginning of January and we graduated around this time, maybe like a week earlier, like April 19th or 20th or something like that. So I was in basic for a very long time. And then we got four days off. 
And then we went to airborne school, which was just right up the street, another part of Fort Benning. So, Tell me what that was like to jump out of an airplane for the first time, because you're not too keen on heights. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And they lead up to it very well. You know, you do, you jump off of a platform first, and then you jump off of a higher platform. And then you do the swing training, right? A swing trainer where they basically hook you up to a zip line and then they send you off of like a 25, 30 foot tower. And then a guy has a rope he can pull. You don't know when he's gonna pull it. You have no idea. So as soon as he pulls it, you gotta you gotta do your little uh they call it a PLF, a parachute landing fall. Basically, you just turn into an egg. You try not to break your head. And so for me, for my class in airborne school, week two is supposed to be what they call, or week three is supposed to be what they call tower week. And they have the tower. So they hook you up to a parachute. You're already hooked up. And then they raise you up in the crane, like three or 400 feet in the air. The parachute is already, it's already aired. You know, it's already stretched out. And they release it. So it just goes, and then you float down. And then, so you do that a couple of times before you get to jump out of an airplane. So it gives you a sense you know, before you're up at like 1300 feet. But for me, of course, luck of the draw, the tower week, they had to cancel for our class because of the high winds. I was unable to get that mid-level buffer zone for, for like your your psyche. So we, I went straight from the, zip, the, uh, the swing trainer, right, to jumping out of an airplane. And so I didn't get that in between and I don't know if it helps or not. I mean, part of me thinks, wow, you, you got off easy. You didn't have to do the swing trick. You didn't have to do the, the tower. Did your, did your heart feel like it was going to beat out of its chest that day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was absolutely insane. So each each class has has what's called a stick. And each stick is, is your row of guys, right? And each, each stick has about, ah, I want to say like 20 guys or something. So, so it goes from where the aircraft opens, you know, where the first guy's looking out all the way back to the end of the airplane where nobody can see anything. And I was the second guy. <laughs> of course, I'm the second guy. It's because of my last name. It starts with a C. So it was, it was like a guy with a B and then a guy with a C, which is me. I'm the second guy. And they tell you, try not to look down before you jump out the first time because a lot of guys get vertigo, they get sick. So the first thing you do is, you know, they open the door and I'm like, not look out the window you know you just can't not do it that's the first thing you're going to do when they tell you not to do it right exactly (laughs) and so it's may it's may in fort benning georgia it's hot it's so hot down there and we're inside of a c-130 it's hot in there and i've got you know 100 pounds of gear on it's so uncomfortable so at this point i am i'm scared to death but i'm like i have to pee i have to pee so bad because they have us in these they have you in the harness. And I think this is part of the psychological thing. They make you wait in the hangar. And I'm not even lying. The benches, they're like this way. So you've got all this gear on and you're like half a cheek trying to get comfortable. You know what I mean? And, you know, they're, they're trying to break guys. They're trying to see who can handle this stuff. And it's just part of the training. By the time you actually get out on the tarmac, they load you up on the airplane, you get up there, they're circling around. They're banking, they're doing all this, you know, just to get everybody riled up, basically. It's like shaking the hornet's nest. Finally, okay, we're going to go, like five minutes, and everybody gets up. 
and like you're like oh my god 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 this, this is gonna happen right now i'm shaking i'm shaking so bad man like i don't know i don't even i can't even really describe the the feeling because there's there's nothing else like it there really is nothing else like it i've had some close calls in my life where you know water skiing or hiking where i thought oh man that could have been it you know like whoo that was a close one but nothing like this you're literally like i'm about to jump out of an airplane and the class before us so while we were in the week one which is ground week where they make you run everywhere you ran, run to and from the chow hall because so you got to run eat and then run back uh during that class the class ahead of us had a jumper their parachute didn't deploy oh. and they burned right in and they they perished they did not make it so i'm like is it one a class is it how many what are the odds here what are we looking at you know and everybody was talking about it you know it was just this you know this thing that was uh so everybody was talking about it about how it was a lieutenant and she had mm -hmm. jumped out too early before handing her static line to the jump master and it went across her neck and she she was rendered unconscious and her main didn't open and she wasn't able to pull her reserve oh. so they think she was unconscious unconscious when she hit the ground so thankfully she hopefully wasn't experiencing that but for the other 300 guys in the class that were getting ready to do this it was it was a nightmare it was a nightmare and they kept mentioning it like at morning formations well we know so and so this happens and blah 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 it's like oh my gosh man i keep they keep mentioning it and and just going back a step when i was in basic towards the end right right before we were going to qualify for our, our marksmanship badge we had the chaplain bring us out to the courtyard and it was very weird, very strange. He, he got us all in a circle. He's like, listen, guys, you may or may have not heard. We had not heard. But one of the soldiers that was qualifying on, on, on the, the, the range crawled up on the sandbag in front of his rifle and took his own life. What? In basic? Yeah. In basic training, yeah. And it was, and again, this was the class right ahead of us. Same thing as the airborne situation. And this was like a week before we were gonna go and qualify. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, like why? I'm like, why, like why, why, why? Like what's going on in that stuff? And the guy had kids and everything and it was just this terrible situation. And it still crosses my mind sometimes, you know, I didn't know the guy because he was in a different class, but those are the things that, and you almost wish they wouldn't have told you. It's like, what, is, what are we gaining by, <laughs> by telling us this, you wow. know? But, and so, and so here I am again in airport school, getting ready to jump. And again, here we are where someone has just died the week before or whatever. And I'm going to do the same thing. It's different, obviously, you know, with the gun range situation, but still it's, it's weighing very heavily on everybody's minds. And everybody is so tense, so anxious. And all at the same time, uh, there's a war going on and like, Every single one of us knew, and they would they would always mention it to us, whether it was our drill instructors or our airborne sergeants. Hey, at some point, this training is going to end, okay? And you're going to have to leave here. And if you think this is hard, just wait till you get where you're going. You know what I mean? Because you are going down range. There's no instance or less about it. You're going, most of you're going the front line. That's why you signed up. That's why 
we're training you the way we are. And so it was very hard to show any weakness or emotion because you knew everybody was going through it. You could see it on everybody's face. It was just, it was, you know, it was rough. Um, and towards the end, the drill instructors really tried to bond with us more. And you could tell that they knew that a lot of us were not gonna make it through the war, you know? And, and that's, that's the truth, you know, that's the truth. Um, those are the numbers, you know, those are the statistics, whether you're gonna get uh, very terribly wounded, maimed, or you're gonna lose the guy next to you, or it's gonna be you yourself, you know, you just don't know. But it really started to become much realer at the end of basic training. And then you got a little bit more lax during airborne school, but then towards the end, on that first jump, you know, right before you're jumping and all that's going through your mind is that lieutenant that in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, what's gonna happen if that happens to me and I can't pull my reserve? You know, wh what am I gonna do, you know? And then I'm thinking about my mom, I'm thinking about my dad and my friends and it's like, go, green light, go. And I'm the second guy out, you know? And I'm like, before you can even think, you're just out. We unpack a lot in this episode, but it is only half of Nick's incredible story. Join me next week for part two. And remember, I can't do this podcast without you. Be sure to visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. Find your favorite platform on the top right of the page. Subscribe to catch every American episode. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America.